is up everybody how is it going welcome to same team an lgbtq sports podcast do you think i would be better about saying lgbtq at this point i am not i am working on it i am your host daniel trainer thank you very much for listening appreciate your time appreciate you being here appreciate you being a part of the same team family because that's what we are we're a family around here and today we have a new member of the family and that member of the family goes by the name of Nick McCarville. Nick is fantastic. Nick is a journalist who does so many things. It, it's really even hard to wrap your head around all of the stuff that Nick does. And he does it all very well. Primarily, Nick covers tennis. He also uh, has covered figure skating, does cover figure skating. He has covered the Olympics. He's covered every big tennis tournament in the world. He's awesome. Uh, it was really great to chat with him. It was really the first time... I think that I've, I, I've had the opportunity to chat tennis on this show, which is fun because I love tennis. I'm a huge tennis guy, huge tennis fan. Uh, I think I'll be seeing Nick in a couple weeks at Indian Wells, this big tennis tournament in Palm Springs. I'm excited about that. So it was fun to kind of geek out about tennis with Nick for a while and, and all of the great stuff that's happening in the LGBTQ space in the tennis world. So that was really fun. Nick is fantastic. I really enjoyed the conversation that we had talking about growing up in Montana, where he's from, how religion sort of played into his life in a really interesting way, a way that I haven't really heard anybody else talk about on this show before. I really enjoyed it. Uh, tennis, figure skating, everything in between. So I, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I, I know that I really did. Nick is so smart and speaks so eloquently about these things and is really on the forefront of making change in the sports world, particularly in tennis, which we really get into here. So thank you very much for listening. Like I said, it means a lot to me and, and I know it means a lot to Nick. So uh, without any further ado, enough of me rambling. Here's my conversation with the fantastic Nick McCarville. <laughs> Can you just tell me a little bit, Nick, about, about where you grew up? Sure, yeah. Uh, first, Dan, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, of course, of course. I I feel like I'm uh, swinging ab above my weight. but um, <laughs> That is very untrue. Let me let me squash your fears right off the bat. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Montana. I grew up in Helena, Montana, which is both my parents are native Montanans, and um, I am one of six kids and very close with my family and um we we're we we're sort of a sporting family dan um tennis kind of became my sport in the family but brothers played soccer sisters played basketball one sister was uh, a collegiate track athlete um yeah and sort of had you know i mean an unspectacular childhood as far as you know we were a middle class family and lots of weekends playing ymca soccer and skiing uh there's you know a lot of good skiing to be had in montana and um when i got into sort of my early teens tennis is the sport that took took over in my life at least um i was pretty competitive in montana and uh, in that part of the u.s but obviously it's not a big sort of sport uh, you know i wasn't i wasn't in california or florida where um you know, tennis is a really big thing, especially um, for the USTA Junior League. So, sure. yeah, I played uh, through high school and probably could have played like 
D2, D3 tennis. Maybe could have made a D1 team. Um, I was like a USTA 4, 4.5, 5.0 player. Oh, wow. Um, but opted uh, instead to go to a school without a tennis team um, in Seattle. And that was, you know, once I went to Seattle, uh, that was the journalism dream sort of took over. And that's where my focus was in college. It's, it's always interesting to me when people get into tennis because I, I was a tennis fan growing up I, I pl- and still am. I played, but not uh, certainly not professionally, not really organized, just kind of played with my family. But I, I feel like I sort of found tennis on my own. You know, I'm, people in my family played tennis, played tennis in high school. But from an early age, I found tennis on TV and was just enraptured by it from such an early age. And it feels like something I kind of found on my own. Um, what was it about tennis that, that immediately hooked you? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I definitely relate with that. I think it's multi-layered for me. I am pretty fiercely independent. And so I think I was drawn to an independent sport. Um, I played pretty competitive basketball through middle school and probably could have played, I don't think I ever would have been on the varsity team, but I probably could have played like my freshman and sophomore years of high school. But I really chose at that point to go into tennis because of the independent piece of it. And yeah. I think that's I think that's multi-layered, Dan. Uh, I, you know, if, if you want to go deep right away, I think. Let's that, please, let's go deep right away, baby. I, I love it. <laughs> I think at that point I was sort of grappling with my sexuality and this was sort of a safe, you know, I was from such an athletic family, uh, as I mentioned, and this was sort of a safe space for me to stand out and still be athletic and to have sort of a fiercely independent quote unquote sport career in high school and not necessarily have to acclimate to a team setting, you know, basketball or soccer or even track. I I ran a lot of track in middle school, but, um, and I also was at least locally in my town, I was the best tennis player of my age. And so that sort of allowed me to achieve in a way that I wasn't elsewhere, and yeah, I mean, it offered me sort of a, a safe haven, but also a challenge and a place to succeed. And um, I was state runner-up my junior year, um, and was probably a, a top five player my three, my sophomore through senior year. Um, okay. So it's pretty competitive statewide, and you know, there was kind of the nice sort of dreamy comparisons for myself to. You know, I idolized players like Jennifer Capriotti and Monica Seles, and those were really the the personas that I was drawn to as a young teenage boy. Yeah. And it really empowered me. Um, you know, and I, I definitely feel safe in, in this podcast space to talk about. That was a very empowering sort of feeling to connect with these great female athletes. And I think listeners will know that tennis is – for women, it is the premier sport globally, and I really connected with the sport that way. I was a big fan, like you were. I watched it on TV. I taped. I, I taped on my VHS. I taped every. Showing um, your age here, Nick. Yes, baby. I, I taped every <laughs> match I could. Um, yeah, and it just it really sort of I think fulfilled a lot of different things that I was processing as we all do um, at that age. You know, it's interesting. I've never really thought about it that way, but it is such a great point. You know, I, I was, you know, I liked men's tennis, but I, I was always more of a fan of women's tennis. That, you know, I idolized like, you know, a Monica Seles or a Lindsay Davenport or whoever. And I, I think it is interesting. It's, it's one of the only 
ways to sort of see these strong, powerful women on TV. You know, when you're when you're growing up, you you, you get to know these personalities of these women who are just so dominating and cool and and i I never really put those those pieces together that's an interesting point yeah 100 percent and it's something i've i've been more reflective on as i've sort of become more active as a journalist and had the opportunity to interview a lot of these athletes but you know you look at um michelle kwan and pat summick and uh shamika holdsclaw and jackie joiner kersey and tara Mm -hmm. lipinski i mean there are a lot of especially for those of us that were (laughs) raised in the 90s, there are a lot of very strong female um, athletes to look up to. Uh, And a lot of them came in individual sports. Um, And yeah, I mean, tennis, uh, my my dad played it, my uncle played it. And my brothers and I played it together. Uh, We just grew up literally two blocks from a a local tennis program at public courts. And so it was sort of the perfect storm for me, Dan, of like, Okay, this is my sport. It's independent. Oh my God, look at these women who are so so successful in it. Yeah. And I think as a a young queer kid, as a young gay kid trying to figure out some identity, that was, it just allowed me to connect more in that sense with it um, than I would, you know, maybe with the World Cup or with the NBA or, yeah. or with, you know, those other sports that I was sort of um, that I had a part of, but didn't necessarily choose to, to grow deeper when I was a teenager. Yeah. So, I mean, what is it like to grow up gay in Montana? Montana is a state that I feel like I don't really know much about. And, and I really don't have a, a real grasp of the vibe. What, what was that experience like? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think Montana is generally conservative. I mean, it's a, a red state through and through. We do have um, a great democratic governor and senator right now, which is, um, there's, there's certainly liberal pockets in Montana. I grew up in Helena, which is the capital. So it's, uh, you know, generally split because the government's there. It has a good balance of, um, liberal versus conservative, but yeah, yeah I mean, uh, you know, I think it's always hard for me to sort of generalize an experience because I think everyone has their own experience, but yeah, I think that there were uphill battles to be fought as far as, you know, coming out and figuring out who I was. And I think sport played a really big role in that, as we were just discussing, you know, I think that mm-hmm. women's sports and sort of the empowerment piece of it. And, and I also found, you know, I, I didn't sort of have any sort of vision myself of I fully knew that I was a, a male playing men's tennis in high school or boys tennis, I guess. Um, but I, I took a lot of independence out of that piece of my life. I also, funnily enough, I was very religious when I came out or when I was sort of coming through figuring out who I was sexually. I was, that was sort of when I was in my deepest part of um, identifying with the Catholic Church. We grew up Catholic and I was in youth group and we were doing service trips and I was traveling a lot to conferences and um, I just kind of took that as all empowerment pieces to figure out sort of my greater self. Um, but you know, I, I think that a kid in Montana, you know, now or in, you know, 2003 when I was in high school, I, I, they're challenged with a sort of a more conservative culture. And mm-hmm. I think now that's probably more emboldened by, you know, sort of the Trump state that we live in culturally and, and in our government. Um, but yeah, I, you know, we, <laughs> We would go on soccer trips for my brothers every summer to Spokane 
and that was the big city. Yeah. We would go to how Spokane. Far, how far away is Spokane? <laughs> uh, five hours. So Spokane was yeah. the big city, and then um, I'd say Boise and Salt Lake, which are both both Boise and Salt Lake are about eight and a half nine hours. So okay, yeah, I mean there wasn't much. Calgary is like six hours north, so we'd go there a couple times, but. Yeah, I mean, it really you you really did feel the disconnect, I think, from the rest of the world in Montana. For yeah, sure. that's interesting. Wait, so I want I want to dive into this Catholic Church thing a little bit. So you were you were religious growing up, and did you sort of say that like, you know, your coming out process? Were are you still a religious guy to this day? Were you a religious guy when you came out? How did religion sort of play into all that? Yeah, no, I'm I'm I don't really identify with religion now. Um, my family's still Catholic, and we'll go to I'll go to Christmas Eve Mass with them. Um, but I've no, gotten it's... out of I've gotten out of going to Christmas <laughs> Eve Mass uh, the past. I think it's two years running now. I haven't gotten shame for not going, so it feels like a big step for me personally. Yeah, uh, you know what I I um, I enjoy it actually going just because I sort of see the magic part of it for my nieces and nephews yeah. and. I have a lot of good memories there as a kid, but no, Dan, when I, um, when I came out, I'd say that was actually like sort of when I tapped into my religious beliefs the most. And, really? um, yeah, I don't know. I was like super into like Christian rock and Avalon and Switchfoot and just all of these, um, yeah, I guess I used it as an empowerment tool and Wait, how, uh, how old are you at this point? Uh, 16, 17, 18. So you're coming uh, out, when you say you're coming out, are you coming out to yourself, your family, friends, everybody? What, what's the process like? Yeah, I think self when I was 13 or 14, uh, friends starting at 16, 17, and then family more 18, 19. It's pretty young. Yeah, it was pretty young. Um, I also, like once I left, yeah, I, I came out in high school, um, and I wasn't ever publicly out in high school. I was only out to certain friends and family members. Um, but then once I left for college in Seattle, I was, you know, a hundred percent out and I really just felt, I actually don't know what it is, Dan, but I just felt emboldened by the religious piece of it. Um, you know, I felt like I was having a, sort of these great discussions with Jesus or, you know, however I, I felt like a spiritual presence was there in my life at that point. And I just took all of the sort of positives of, um, you know, this is me and this is who I am. And I, I found whatever sort of running water led me to this, you know, this great sort of vast land that was my true sexuality. And I, I actually yeah. remember being on a, a service trip. I think it was after my junior year of high school, if I remember right. And I remember the youth group leader who I was friends with and we, we are still in touch. She was laughing because she had just come out of a, a meeting with the other youth group leaders and she was like, oh, someone in the in the meeting brought up that they thought you were gay, Nick. And she was <laughs> laughing about it. And I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just remember at that point being like, well, yeah, like no shit I am. But like there's no way. Yeah. So there was definitely like it wasn't like it was all fine and rosy for me too. you know, like very sure. much very much felt like I was closeted publicly. I was student body president. I was tennis captain. I was editor of the newspaper. I, I sort campus. of, well, I just chose all of those things to, uh, you know, sort of further this, uh, not plastic, but so, sort of further this, uh, you know, achieving individual because my sexuality wasn't what I wanted people to notice about me, even For though sure. I was 
obviously gay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I, know, I, I understand. Yeah. I understand the desire to, when you're going through all of this, to want to at least hold on to some kind of stability when everything else sort of feels like it's going at 100 miles an hour, whether that's tennis, whether that's, you know, whether that's religion. I, I can understand wanting to hold on to that and fear just everything kind of falling apart. Yeah, I mean, a, a million percent. And I've actually been, uh, for the last year, I've been in therapy and we've talked a lot about, you know, just how do you sort of grapple now in your adulthood with, you know, the person? Because we all, I mean, you know, we're never, we're never changing. We're never not changing. We're always growing. We're always forming who we are. But especially in those years, say from 12 to 18, 19, when you're in middle school and it's so awkward and then high school. And I had a, for, for me, a lot of that time was independent, and it actually is sort of reflective now, I think, in, in my work as an independent journalist, is that's just sort of how I learned to survive and thrive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, each of those entities sort of took on a life of their own, and, and it, I think, allowed me, in a sense, to sort of figure out who I was in that time. But yeah, I was never, I was never ever fully out in high school. That was, there were actually a couple guys um, there are a couple out gay guys in high school and I was so in awe of them because they were able to be out and, um, you know, they had a good group of girlfriends and, um, uh, that just, uh, that never even crossed my realm of possibility. But once I graduated from high school, um, that felt, that felt much more comfortable. Yeah. So when you are making this transition between tennis playing and then getting into journalism is there any fear on your end um about being accepted in in sort of the journalistic world and and have you run into any of that i'm so rooted in tennis from like watching it as a kid knowing the sport so well having played myself reading about it in the newspaper like tennis is home for me and so i never felt any fear of rejection in in that sense but yeah i mean i think that you know, I've often had conversations with people about because if I meet someone, say if it's on a first date or, you know, if it's a friend, at a you know, a friend of a friend at a party and they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a sports journalist. And then they say, oh, cool. What do you cover? And I say, I mostly cover tennis. And I think usually they look at me like, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. That's a job. Right. But uh, I and I say that in the sense that I've never sort of been pulled to cover the NHL or Major League Baseball or the NBA or the NFL just because those aren't sports that ever really interested me and I, and I never even had any sort of expertise in them as, as a journalist. Um, but I also think sort of self-reflectively that there are also spaces that I would probably feel much more um, not necessarily unwelcomed. I think those sports have done a great job at um, you know, continuing the conversation, you look at the work that Billy Bean's done at the MLB and Jason Collins has done at the NBA and Robbie Rogers in soccer and, you know, Michael Sam for his part in football. And um, I just, I've felt always at home in, in tennis. And then obviously the work in the Olympics has come as well in figure skating and gymnastics, uh, you know, sort of in our heteronormative descriptors, they're not necessarily masculine sports. <laughs> right. Um, and so, uh, you know, but still, I, I think that as a, a out gay journalist, I think that, you know, there's definitely been times where I've sort of had to uh, to push myself to 
you know, be myself, whether that be in the press room or whether that be in an interview or, you know, um, I haven't really done that much reporting, say, on, on gay issues in sports, but right. I've done some of it and that's felt empowering sort of to me as a person and as a journalist. And, um, you know, the last the last six months, we've now done a couple of these LGBT tennis events yeah. both before the US Open and the Australian Open which has sort of allowed me a space there and it's opened up a lot of interesting conversations of people asking questions like you just did of sort of what's my experience been and yeah there's been a few times where you're kind of like oh this tennis player has been outspoken of his views on you know sexuality in sports or, or gay athletes queer athletes and yeah um, you know I feel like I've sort of been a, a tiny small voice in trying to sort of embolden the opposite in that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, this sort of leads into the million-dollar question that comes up on this podcast a lot, but I think it's it's especially interesting in tennis. You know, why do you think that there aren't more out players on tour? Because I'm sure that they exist. And, I mean, do you think that the climate isn't quite there yet so, so players can't feel accepted it's you know it's obviously a trend like i said in all of all of professional sports but i think because as we've been saying tennis is an individual sport it sort of surprises me that there haven't been more players in recent years who have come out because it seems like some of the same barriers that exist in professional sports you know having to deal with teammates having to deal with you know whatever aren't quite there i mean why do you think there hasn't been more of that in in tennis in recent years yeah, well, I think we should specify that it's men's tennis, right? Yeah, because so you look at, for yeah, sure, yeah. yes. Yeah, which I, I, I know you know, but for the listener, I mean, you look at the WTA and, you know, you look at women's sports across the board and, the, you know, women have been the leaders. Shocker, the women have <laughs> led, the, led the way in, uh, once again, um, being able to be accepting. I mean, the WTA, I think, has, has led, led this movement in a lot of ways. I think you also look at the WNBA has, has done so as well. But um, we had Casey Delacqua, who is an Australian out tennis player um, at our panel in, in New York at the U.S. Open. And, um, you know, she just said no one cares on the WTA. And I think she meant that in the best way possible. Yes. It's just in the sense of... You know, you look at what Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King were able to do, and I think that was carried over by um, Renee Stubbs and so many women now who are out on the WTA, Casey Delacqua, Alison Van Utfunk, Rachel Hogenkamp, um, Johanna Larson. you know, and, and these are names probably that a lot of listeners aren't necessarily recognizing, but it's just because sort of their coming out has, has been both empowering but also a non-headline in the sense that it's just accepted there and that it's not made a big deal of. Um, but when you look at men's tennis, when you look at the ATP and the top level of men's tennis, I think it's a little bit been a perfect storm, Dan. I think it's the fact that it's a very heteronormative, uh, you know, masculine culture as most male sports are. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, tennis is, as I was talking about sort of in a positive way for me as a teenager, it's fiercely independent, but that also comes with the fact that if a player wants to come out or feels that he's ready to come out, he doesn't have a team to come out to first right. and then have his back when he's ready to go public with that. And mm -hmm. Jason Collins spoke a little bit about that at our event before the Australian Open, um, which we were, you know, delighted to have him. Um, 
for uh, right before the Australian Open, if you don't know, we did. I know you know, but if listeners don't know, yeah. um, did a LGBT tennis event, and Jason Collins was our featured speaker, and we also had Renee Stubbs. Um, we had Kevin Anderson, who is a Wimbledon finalist and top ten tennis player, who is a great ally of the community. He and his wife Kelsey, he came and spoke. Um, we also had Angie Green, who runs this awesome nonprofit called Stand Up Events. Um, and they work specifically with Australian-based men's professional sports leagues in helping train athletes and ambassadors. Um, and you can hear the siren going by because I do live in New York City. <laughs> are, are, are they coming um, to get you, Nick? It sounds very close. Yeah, I think so. We're, t- we're getting too gay here. <laughs> um, I know the sirens just start coming. Trump's America. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, this event was great. And Jason... You know, Jason spoke about a lot of sort of the support that he felt from other NBA players. And I think all of that then, you know, sort of leads to me talking also about Brian Verhaley coming out a couple years ago on the Sports Illustrated podcast. He's a former top 70 player on the ATP. Um, And he came out 10 years after he retired. And at this point, he's still the only out uh, professional men's tennis player. There's a couple lower ranked players who have you know, made their sexuality be known on social media. Um, but I, th- I think it's a perfect storm of, you know, that independence, the lack of a team. I think you also look at tennis, it's so global now that there's a lot of cultures, uh, you know, yes. at sports and in one locker room and in one player lounge and in one, um, you know, sponsor pool. And I just think that, you know, um, there's been some great reporting, um, by by a journalist in the UK um, sort of bouncing off of, not that our events in, in the US um, sort of led him to this, but um, talking about why there isn't a um, out tennis player in men's tennis right now. And there's just so, there's just so many, there's just so many layers to it. And yeah. when this, when this journalist was, um, asking some of the players about this issue in London last year at the ATP Finals, a couple of them, there was a couple doubles teams that he was asking, and and they were making jokes about themselves being a romantic couple, or you know, not us, uh, you know, and mm. just those little things of, um, you know, those little sort of things that I think would not necessarily be, you know outwardly obvious to anyone who wasn't within our community but those are the things that sort of matter and um uh, you know uh, the journalist's name is charlie eckleshire and he's done a a great deal of reporting i believe i'm right in saying it's for the independent um but if you google charlie eckleshire and gay tennis you'll find he did a great story in the lead-up to to the australian open because, you know, it's all all those reasons sort of squished into one. And then I think what Brian Vahaley, the point that he made before the Australian Open, um, or excuse me, before the U.S. Open when we had that panel, is that we just need more of the top players speaking out. And mm-hmm. uh, before our event at the U.S. Open, some, uh, some gay reporters in Cincinnati asked Roger Federer about the issue. He was well-spoken on it. Yeah, I saw that. Kevin Anderson was well-spoken on it. Novak Djokovic was asked about it by Charlie Eccleshire um, in uh, in London, and so Brian Vahaley's take on it is that we just need more 
you know, we just need more of those big voices to, to come out and support. And that's why I think it was so huge for Kevin Anderson to do what he did. I think it's so huge for Jason Collins to continue to his, use his platform. And then you kind of look at the allies, um, you know, you look at the allies like Kevin Anderson, and then hopefully we can build, build more of them, um, you know, from the top level of men's tennis, I think, you know, Andy Murray hasn't had the chance to be outspoken about it necessarily, but um, those types of names I think will only help because there are there are professional men's tennis players right now that are, that are closeted. To be quite frank, Dan, I don't I don't know any of them. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no whispers. There's no rumors about any players that I know. But we you know you just know it as a fact um, that there are. And and my hope through all of this is, and I've said this from the beginning of you know just sort of taking this as my tiny little mantle is that uh, we're not asking anyone to come out ever. I think the continued conversation is how do we, how do we make the, this, the sport and sort of the whole space a more welcoming um, space for everyone, not just for players, but for everyone who feels like they want to be included. Yeah, because it's such a delicate thing, right? You don't want to be in the position of forcing anybody out. You don't want to make anybody feel bad for still being in the closet. But that's why, like you said, I think, the, the Kevin Anderson involvement in your event was so impressive to me and so exciting because, you know, this is a guy who is at, you know, essentially the peak of his career, one of the best players in men's tennis. He doesn't have to come out and say this stuff, but genuinely felt like he wanted to. And so I feel like the power of that can't really uh, be understated, you know. So hopefully, you know, players like him and Roger, you know, the more free and open that these guys can be, hopefully it creates an environment where other players, you know, who are in the closet can feel like they can come out. I, I hope it, you know, it might be a little bit of a process, but, you know, the more voices like that that, that come to the forefront, I think, are, are just going to make a huge change. So I applaud that event and, and yeah. for 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 doing what he did because like i said it's like you know he, d- he didn't have to do that but he's he's one of the best players in the world and, and wanted to do something and, and say something which totally. i think is so impressive well and I, I think that sort of that brings up another good point is that you know most of these tennis players are, are essentially playing full-time tennis from the age of 13 14 15 yeah. and so you look at kevin anderson he went to the university of illinois for two years i believe um was on it you know was on a team was in a university setting and those two factors, going to college, being on a team, they're really impactful because, you know, these these young tennis players, they leave home and they are put in their bubble. And that bubble is about survival. And that bubble isn't necessarily about acceptance. And, mm-hmm. and I think, too, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see in the next five to ten years of a lot of the kids that come out of academies or the fact that now social media is much more sort of inclusive. And, a, you know, my hope or my feeling is that you know, kids, kids, teenagers, the next generation is much more open-minded and sort of aware of and welcoming of uh, of us, of the community, of of LGBT issues. And um, you just look at what Kevin Anderson, you know, and the whole time he and Kelsey and Elena Skuro, who's his publicist, they're all telling me they're like, Nick, this is no big deal. And I was like, no, this is a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But to them, it's it, and he's taken a lot. He's taken on a lot of issues. I mean, they're outspoken on animal rights, on global warming. And, you know, you just look at that. And this is not to demean any tennis player who didn't go to college. But another one of our big allies through all this LGBT tennis stuff has been James Blake 
right. was a former top five player. He's now the tournament director at the Miami Open. He's a tennis channel contributor. He is, you know, one of the best men's tennis players in the U.S. in the last 20 years. And he has told me time and time again, he's like, Nick, whatever you need. And I, you know, I don't even know James that well. He's been, a, he's been certainly, you know, kind to me professionally. But, um, you know, again, went to college, went to Harvard for a year, and it, just that little bit of, um, of education, I, I think, really goes a long way. And I think um, I've spoken at length, Dan, with the ATP player relations team in London because they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we help educate these men, these professionals who are making hundreds of thousands and at the top level millions of dollars a year to be more culturally inclusive. And, mm-hmm. and that's, not a, that's not an easy job to do because you're fighting against cultural norms. You're fighting against the heteronormatives. You're fighting against what does it mean to be boys will be boys. All of those factors are ingrained in us and it's so multi-layered and that's sort of why I roll my eyes when they say sports aren't political or politics should mix with sports because it's all interspersed and no, I, I don't need to, you know, my job is as a tennis journalist or as a sports journalist first and foremost, but am I not ever going to bring up the fact that I'm gay or the fact that I identify as queer? No, because it's it's all interspersed, and I think that's sort of the whole idea behind your podcast. Um, and so, you know, it, that's why it's such a multi-layered discussion, and that's why, you know, to loop back completely, that's why we still haven't seen an out men's tennis player um, who just has felt comfortable in yeah. saying uh, saying that this is me. And you just imagine, I mean, for any of you out there, you just you we all know. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and sort of how, you know, you have you have these little controversies that bubble up and just imagine the assurance, the self-assurance that someone has to have to feel like, okay, I can I can independently say I'm gay and I'm happy to do this on a public platform. You even had in Charlie Eccleshire's um, article, um, there was even a quote from. Marcelo Mello, who's a, um, and excuse me, it's the Telegraph. It's not the Independent. This okay. is all coming to me as I, I speak about it. Hey, listen. But it, in the Telegraph, um, he quotes Marcelo Mello, who is uh, an established, a really successful doubles player. And Marcelo says that player that comes out when he chooses to do so, he needs to respect and have the respect in the locker room. And it's kind of like, whoa, like a. Because I think what he's saying is that, you know, this this player needs to be sort of established and that other people need to respect him as a person. And I kind of get where he's coming from. But it's also like, well, uh, can't anyone come out? I mean, you know, like no matter who they are, you know, so that's that's just those little things, because I think Marcelo Mello would say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with what I said. But I think those are the little things of like. Well, wait, so if someone's 22 and ranked 159th in the world and qualify for a Grand Slam and then, you know, feel like, hey, guess what? I'm making my Grand Slam debut at the French Open. I'm going to come out. This is who I am. I'm proud of it. Well, does that person get less respected than a a top five player or get uh, sort of less of a welcoming from the locker room than someone who is a Grand Slam winner and a top five player and then chooses to come out in their career? I mean, those are just the little things. That's sort of what I couple with. You know, the doubles team sort of ribbing each other of like, oh, we're a couple. Like, 
those are just the little things I think that uh, you know tennis is still fighting against. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's so that's so much to put on one person. You know, someone who's trying to build up the courage to come out, also has to worry about, hey, uh, am I successful enough as a player to do this? You know, it's like you should. I, I think anybody who wants to do it and feels that you know they have the motivation to do it should should be welcomed and, and welcomed with open arms, no matter you know sort of where they are in the world rankings. I would hope. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hundred yeah, percent. Um, so the, the simple answer, Dan, is it's complicated. <laughs> well, and I think too, like it's what you're speaking to and what I, I talk about here a lot is like, it, it feels like people like you and, and with this podcast, it, it feels a lot of just laying the groundwork, you know, it sort of feels like we're, we're almost at a place where big breakthroughs are going to start happening. And it's just, I, I think it's about having these dialogues, you know, just about, the complexity of it and, and letting young people know that, you know, it is okay. And it is going to be, it is going to be difficult at times and it's not going to be easy all the time, but Hey, look at this person, look at this person, look at this person. And I think this younger generation is, is obviously so much more open and welcoming. At least I hope so. And like a good example, I think is like a couple weeks ago, I had this guy, Matt, former professional soccer player on the podcast who literally just decided to come out and did it with an Instagram post without any sort of hubbub, you know, without any big thing. He's just like, eh, I just want to come out. And he posted a picture of he and his boyfriend and said, Hey, I'm gay. You know, all right, let's move on with our day, which I think is so great. You know, he just felt like he could do that. And I think it's because of the people who sort of come before and, and broken down some doors and, and hopefully just made things a little bit easier. I just think it's about laying that groundwork for this next generation, which feels like, at least I hope, is about to sort of rise up and really, really, really start to change things. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think you can, you know, the, every situation is different, but you can kind of take the Jason Collins, like, cover of Sports Illustrated. And that was a monumental moment in and of itself. Yeah. But I think that you you make a great point in the fact that a tennis player could choose to come out sort of, you know, the way that that soccer player did, or he could choose to come out, you know, in a much more sort of splash dash, you know, magazine cover, feature article, what have you. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. We might have more of um, someone who, who just sort of says it and says, let's move on with it. And I think... I think that they would be allowed to. I, they would definitely get a lot of media attention, but I also think that they would sort of have, they would have control of the, they would at least have control of like the tone setting. Yeah. But you know, the, the dangerous thing, and again, that comes back to how sort of self-assured someone has to be is, you know, then the narrative sort of goes wherever the storm takes it, which I think is the scariest part. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, tennis culture is so interesting to me. And, and this could be a whole nother podcast entirely, honestly. And, and you can speak to this uh, more eloquently than I can. But tennis in general is such a fascinating sport in the sense that it does sort of have this perception from some that it can be sort of an uppity country club sort of thing but then you look at sort of the world tour and it's this global thing where people are coming together from all over the world well it's it's hard for me to get a grasp on what tennis culture is like you know if, if somebody comes out how that player is going to be accepted when they walk onto, you know, a major stadium court or, you know, whatever, some side court. It doesn't really matter, I suppose. But it, it's a little hard for me to grasp what the typical 
tennis fan is, who that person is. Um, and I, I think that it's a welcoming bunch. And I think that if somebody comes out, a male player especially comes out, I think they would be welcomed with open arms for the most part. But I do wonder about that. Yeah, you know, I think like any sport, the the fan base is, you know, really varied. Um, I, I think, you know, as a source of pride, I think the gay community has a great connection to tennis. Um, I think especially because women's tennis is so strong. But yeah, um, I, yeah, I, th- I think that the fan base, I think in the U.S. you look at it and it's maybe a little more of an affluent um, country club sport or that's sort of the corner that he gets put in but right. i think global i think globally it's really accessible i think it's really especially in eastern europe like you know it's become such a huge sport with the sort of the rise of athletes from that part of the world in the last 30 years yeah. uh, you know as, as tennis is globalized which i think has been a really good thing um but yeah i, I think maybe the tennis fan would skew like uh, you know i mean when you look at like advertising and, and the sponsors and, and the fact that there's a lot of, you know, car and banking and insurance. I mean, <laughs> I know that's, a, it, that's always so like, I know whenever I'm watching well, tennis on TV, it's like, Hey, do you want a Rolex or Mercedes Benz or I don't know <laughs> to put your money in a Swiss bank? I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we wish, right. We <laughs> dream. Of yeah, things. we sure do. Um, but I, I think that that's sort of, that tells you, right? Like, oh, okay, it's still, it's still, still rather conservative or it's still rather affluent, which then equals most of the times conservative. Yeah. Um, I feel like every so, time, every time I've been to a major tennis event in my life, it's such a diverse crowd, which is so cool. I mean, it makes it so much fun. I mean, I was at Indian Wells for the first time last year and was so impressed with just the diversity of it. And it's so fun. I mean, it, it really almost feels like you're sort of at, you know, the NCAA tournament or something. I mean, people have, you know, their Federer hats on and their Novak shirts and they've got this and that. It's But it, it never felt like overly competitive. It just felt like such a cool thing. The globalization of tennis is so fun. It's like I, I, I can't think of a sport that has more of a diverse audience just because of how global it is which leads me to think that you know whoever the first sort of major male player to come out is going to be accepted uh quite well i hope yeah um yes i i think that i don't know the numbers i think it more it still skews as more of a white sport i mean as far as the fan base goes Mm -hmm. Uh, and indian wells is a testament to that i think that um, you know, there's there's sort of waves to be made, and and the USTA I think has worked really hard to try to to sort of diversify younger kids who are playing tennis, um, which you know that fan base is only going to come from you know kids who either watch it or, or play it, and we obviously want them to be playing it. Um, but I also look at like um, there's a, a Thai player, a player from Thailand named Luxika Kumkum, and she came out last year. Um, and an article while she was at a tournament uh, in the Times of India. And it was really cool because, you know, in Thailand, it's it's still an issue in a sense to be gay and especially to be a, a lesbian. And she mm-hmm. sort of said, I'm, I'm coming out because I have this global platform and I get to travel for my job. And um, I mean, that made barely a drop in, in even the tennis sphere. But I think it, in Thailand, I think that was a pretty big deal. And so and there's the points we made. I mean, you look at uh, gay athletes from Russia, uh, you know, uh, from a lot of countries that um, wouldn't necessarily 
be sort of welcoming with open arms of having an out athlete and you sort of have to, um, you know, that's a factor as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, as much as I could talk about tennis forever, I do want to ask you about a couple other things. So we have to pivot away from tennis, <laughs> sure. unfortunately. But that's okay. <laughs> so how do you how do you get into covering figure skating? Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. Nice pivot. Um, I yeah. So I worked in 2012. I did the London Olympics from New York for NBCOlympics.com. And um, the turnaround from summer to winter is always way faster than winter to summer. If you're an Olympics geek, you know what that means. But essentially, it's 18 months from the summer to winter. Whereas if you have a winter games like we just did in Pyeongchang, you don't have another Olympics until essentially 30 months later. Right. Um, so I had finished my work for them. I, you know, I did a month long stint in Stamford in Connecticut. And then, you know, I was freelancing. I had just left the Daily Beast. I had been there for a few months. And prior, I'd been with a um, little sister site of msnbc.com. And I was kind of trying to, like, make my way in the tennis freelance world. I got a big contract with the US Open to do digital stuff for them. And then I was, like, a little bit treading water in 2013. I did the Australian Open again. I did Indian Wells for the first time. I did a couple other small events. And NBC basically came to me and said, we need a producer, a reporter for figure skating. And, you know, we thought you did such a good job with tennis. Like, you know, are you happy to come along and do that as well? And I may have like oversold my figure skating knowledge a little <laughs> bit, Dan. <laughs> and my boss knows that. So I can fairly say that now. And I've obviously learned so much since. But there was maybe like a couple articles where I identified Meryl Davis and Charlie White as Meryl White and Charlie Davis. Hey, and who's, yeah, who cares? Didn't know that the Grand Prix series wasn't the World Cup. I mean, it was just like, it yeah. was a steep learning curve for me. But um, yeah, I sort of dove head first. I did a, that was a nine month contract from August, or excuse me, July of 2013 into the Sochi Olympics. And I somehow scored the opportunity to go to Sochi at the end of that. I was the on the ground reporter. So I was filing stories um, from Sochi with an editor back in in Stanford. And I mean, from there, I sort of dove headfirst from that experience. So I did I worked with Ice Network, which was um, sort of the figure skating news site the last five years until it folded in July. And then a lot of my work um, now comes with US figure skating. We I do a podcast called Ice Talk with Jackie Wong. Yeah, shout um, it out, baby. Yeah, it's nearly weekly. You can subscribe on iTunes. Nearly weekly. That's Spotify. how I describe this podcast. Yeah, too. nearly weekly. Um, yeah, yeah we, I mean, we talk about sort of in a, in a geeky fashion, um, figure skating, its latest events. Um, Jackie is like the end all be all of figure skating news. Um, he's a fellow LGBT um, member of the community. And then um, I work with U.S. figure skating on what's called the Ice Desk. We do um, basically like, uh, you know, like ESPN desk shows before and after um, all the big events in the U.S. So this year we had three. We had Skate America, U.S. Championships, and we just had four continents in Anaheim. Um, but it's really cool. We, we It's a product that they've pushed really hard on Facebook and YouTube, and I think it's gotten a great response. But um yeah, I've loved my I've loved jumping into figure skating. I mean, I really I really had to sort of learn it from the get go. And I, I'm still sort of every event I'm taking more in. And 
there was a controversy last weekend with Ice Dance, and I had, I had no idea what was happening, so I got <laughs> to learn there. But it's a really cool, you know, I mean, I think Adam Rapon has sort of helped us, help sort of the general sports or, or general fan learn more about figure skating this last year. But, yeah. like, it is a sport that is still sort of alive and healthy, and it's a massive sport in Japan. Um, I think it's lost a little bit of its foothold in the U.S., but... Yeah, I mean, they're incredible athletes. You look at, like, the pairs event and the fact that, you know, they're basically doing acrobatics uh, on ice with, you know, holding it's a woman insane. over the head. And, it's insane. Yeah, it's insane. When you stop There's, to think about it, it's like, it's what crazy. is happening? It's like, it's just, it's the wildest thing in the world. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so, like, yeah, my, figure skating, great. yeah, the world of figure skating is just endlessly fascinating to me. And I, I talked about this with Eric earlier, but, like, coming from my brother played hockey so coming from a hockey family we were always sharing an arena with with figure skating families you know and it just always just seemed like so intense and it's these young kids and it's these coaches and it's early mornings and it's so crazy that world is just so interesting to me and i just i think anybody who makes it in that world just has a brain that works in a way that I don't quite understand. Like the work yeah. ethic mm -hmm. that it takes to get to that elite level in figure skating is just so insane to me. And I just, I, I love it. I don't watch as much figure skating as I shouldn't. Like, I'm going to sound like an idiot now, but I was watching, was I watching the, what, the Nationals a couple yeah, of weeks US ago? Yeah, Yeah, watching my boy Nathan Chen. Uh <laughs> Uh, and it's it's great. It, it's fantastic. It's it's an interesting thing that like obviously everybody only cares about. Fi well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people, of course, really only pay attention to figure skating during the Olympics, um, which is unfortunate because it's it's such a crazy thing. I mean, I was just enraptured by by watching this competition that truthfully I didn't even know was happening. And then I turned on TV and I was well, I watched it for like two days straight. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. I mean. And, and this Nationals actually was a really great one. Yeah, Nathan Chen won again. Um, but, yeah, the, uh, you know, I, I think that um, I just I also really enjoy, you know, tennis has sort of brought this out in me. But I, I do kind of enjoy working in niche sports. I mean, tennis is more mainstream, obviously, than the Olympic stuff that I've done. But yeah, um, I cover gymnastics in Rio um, for TeamUSA.org, uh, and then I obviously, this last year, I went back to the Olympics for NBC as their figure skating reporter, um, doing video stuff versus writing, but um, it's really, yeah, like, I, I just feel like there's a power within niche sports, and I'm so fascinated by figure skaters as well, because, as you're saying, it takes so much hard work, and then there's not really, I mean, I think actually Olympic sports are kind of uh, sort of the only ones that apply this sort of pressure, but they work so hard. It's, it is so hard. And then you've got one shot. Oh, and it, it's like, <laughs> it stresses me out more than I can even say. I struggle watching Olympic figure skating. I mean, there is nothing better in terms of just like being on edge, but like I, it is so stressful for me to watch because like you said, it's like literally a lifetime of work leads to this one, you know, shorter, long program. You're out there for like a few minutes and, you know, it's literally make or break for everything you've been doing for your entire yeah. life. It's, I mean, the stakes of that, it, that's what makes it so fascinating and so good, but it's just, it's also, oh my God, it's too much sometimes. Yeah. Well, and you look at, I mean, I think diving could make that same argument, gymnastics. Yeah. 
uh, I, tennis is like the antithesis of that because every, you know, you, every point can go wrong and the next point you can make it right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And the, the sort of expectation of perfection in figure skating because oh. they literally have six and a half minutes to be perfect. And, you know, Nathan, Nathan Chen doing quads, which you look at an athlete like Adam Rapon and the fact that Adam Rapon worked so hard I almost said worked his ass off, but he worked his ass on <laughs> so, so hard for so many years and couldn't do a, I mean, you know, he landed a quad a few times in competition, whereas Nathan Chen can do five of them in his free skate, six of them rather. Um, Wild. But he has to be perfect. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it is interesting that, you know, after tennis, you find yourself getting involved in another sort of individual based sport here. Nick, I mean, I'm sensing a trend. These sports that come to you really speak to your your personality. This is you, man. Yeah, I I, um, no, I guess I really love the Olympics. I mean, uh, you know, the Olympics has taken a, a tough hit, I think, in the press the last decade or so and I, I that's warranted i mean the olympics is a, a very um it's a it's fraught obviously with issues and sort of problems of its own but sure. um yeah I, I just love that i think that's a lot of sort of my childhood and we lo- we watch a lot of olympics um and i think i just identified more strongly with it right <laughs> oh for sure i get that. i mean just what what is it like covering the olympics i mean i is it Crazy? I mean, what is your life like? <laughs> um, well, you know, I say this with tennis, too. I think, um, you know, the first time I went to the Australian Open in 2012, it was like, holy shit, I'm in Australia. I took this long flight. Like, I can't believe I'm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, this is what it really looks like. And I think the Olympics feels much the same. I think the Olympics is much more impactful because it's such a compact period of time and yeah um it's such a global event like people are paying so close of attention to it which is so so cool for those athletes in those three weeks um i i think that you know i don't want to sound jaded at all but at 33 like i've sort of settled into my career dan and i once i get to an event it's kind of like okay like what's my job how do i do my job the best i can yeah and, uh, but you know, still like going to South Korea last year, it was, we flew into Seoul, we took the bus ride to, um, to Gangyang, which is, you know, next to Pyeongchang, which is where the figure skating was. Um, you know, it was incredible to be at the hotel. We were next, we were next to the hotel where Johnny and Tara and Terry Gannon were staying. And, uh, you know, I kind of geek out about that because, you know, they're childhood heroes and, and even professional heroes of I, mine. I, 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 am a, I think they do such a good job. I'm so obsessed with them. Yeah, I mean, they, I think they've done a really good job of helping sort of uh, gain more of a mainstream traction for figure skating. Um, I, but once you're at the event, it's, you know, I am very focused on my work. And so yeah, I mean, it's a I job. Think, yeah, but like, I actually, like, I think it was this week that was the one year anniversary and one year anniversary of Mariah Nagasu's triple axel. And so I remember sitting in the arena um, inside um, the Young Young Ice Arena. And I was like, you know, you're I was like sweating and like, oh, my God, Mariah, like you can do this. And like, I don't really get that invested <laughs> professionally because that's our job like my job isn't to be like 
you know, come on, Adam, like you can do this. Uh, but, you know, I think in my heart of hearts, like I want Serena to win because she's the greatest of all time. Or I want Adam to be perfect in the free skate because it's so beautiful. Or I mean, I usually want people ask me often, like, what's your favorite? Who's your favorite player to watch? And my favorite tennis matches ever to watch or my favorite figure skating to watch is that which is brilliant you know one matches that go to seven six in the deciding set or you know a clean free skate or a perfect routine from simone biles or what have you yeah i always want sort of the athletes to excel because those are the greatest stories that we can tell as journalists yeah of course um but you know i um i think i i've learned to i'm still a slow packer but i've learned to pack well and (laughs) um i you know there's i've dedicated my allegiance to delta and uh, you know you're just like as i travel a lot i mean my friends now know like i'll I'll text them when i'm back in new york rather than when i'm gone because i'm gone more than i'm in the city i travel like 25 30 weeks a year and so um you know i also i think it's not lost on me like what the work is you know like i am so honored to be doing the work I, I know that I'm talented, Dan, but I also know that it's the luck of the draw and it's the fact that, you know, maybe I caught someone's eye, uh, you know, what's what's the Lady Gaga quote? If one person in a hundred sees your talent, like people in a room, exactly. I should know this because I've heard her say it 500 <laughs> times. We were just talking about that last night. Um, yeah, I just I think that one person sort of saw me and and I've been lucky in my career that that's happened a few times. That's how I ended up at USA Today as as their tennis reporter for two years. That's how I have continued my work with NBC. That's how I got my work on Ice Desk. I, you know, I, I by no means would I ever say like I know best or my writing is this or my reporting is that or my on camera presence is above and beyond. Like I just don't believe that. I think that there's so many there's so many great reporters out there and there's so many people like you that's doing sort of grassroots journalism too. That's, that's really cool to see. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of from a work sense or from an Instagram filtered sense, I I'm living a very charmed life and, um, I, you know, I, I just love, I love being a part of these big events and I consider myself really lucky to do so. Well, I'll let you be humble. Uh, but I, you, you're successful because you're very good at what you do. So let that be known, okay, Mister Mister Humility. I'll, I understand, but accept, I will. I'm going to shower praise on you. You're good at what you do. That's why you're successful, Nick. I'll okay? accept your compliment. We're working on that in therapy too, Dan. <laughs> well, listen, I don't want to get too deep into that. I know it's a private relationship, but you know. Uh, so, you know, sort of wrap up here. What What is next for you? I mean, when you look at you know, LGBTQ stuff in sports. And you've, you've obviously be done doing, you've obviously done these queer inclusion events. Easy for me to say, are there plans for more of those? And, and, and what do you sort of want to do sort of as a trailblazer uh, in, in the next couple of years in terms of LGBTQ rights in sports? Well, I think um, as Billie Jean King says, we've come a long way, baby. And I think we've got a long <laughs> way to go, baby. Um, baby, baby, baby. I, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really proud of what we've done in New York and Melbourne. I th- you know, that's all thanks to the sort of, you know, m- impactful panelists that we've had in Brian Bahaley, Casey Delacqua, Jason Collins, Renee Stubbs, Kevin Anderson. 
Um, uh, you know, I failed to mention that Tennis Australia was hugely supportive of what we did in Melbourne. Love and that. I actually think that that is big, Dan. I, I, if you're a tennis fan, you know the Margaret Court arena and you know Margaret Court and you know Ugh. the whole controversy and that she's a terrible human being in the sense that she essentially is vitriolic in her um, defense of one man, one woman. Yeah. But Tennis Australia was so supportive of that event. It would not have happened in Melbourne if if it um, if we wouldn't have had their support and they doubled Craig Tiley is the tournament director. He's I can call him a friend. He came to the event that night. He didn't have to. It was the Friday before the Australian Open. They doubled our the money that we raised that night. I think we raised nearly five thousand dollars for stand up events for the work that they're doing. And those are just the little things of like, okay, we had a great discussion. Maybe it made a little splash on Twitter. Jason Collins was there. There's pictures. We have this Facebook Live, whatever. But I think more of like, you know, the big players getting asked about it in press or the Craig uh -huh. Tiley coming to this event or Tennis Australia, or, you know, the ATP University. They're asking us, OK, oh, you know, they're asking me, what do we do? And I'm telling them, I don't know what to do. I'm just doing this event. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's cocktails and we're going to talk, <laughs> oh, we're gonna talk about you, uh, you and I would be things. good friends, Nick. <laughs> Well, there always needs to be a, at least one signature cocktail. Um, oh, my God. Put that but, on the uh, gravestone. Yeah, yes. Um, I don't have any plans right now as far as um, events to come. I think we might do something um, in London, and I would hope that we would do something before the U.S. Open in New York, obviously London being Wimbledon. Um, I have My focus with the LGBT tennis stuff is... Um, I've wanted each of those panels to feel rather different, and I think they have. I think the challenge is, you know, not that coming out stories aren't powerful because we all have our own, and even in today's discussion, we kind of, you know, we got to talk about sort of different layers, and that's sort of the power of your podcast. But I don't, I think because the tennis space is so small, and, you know, we have these athlete stories that are so powerful, I don't want it to just be sort of a rinse and repeat of, coming out stories because sure. I think while that's powerful, I want to sort of move the conversation forward in a different way. And so, yeah, I'm talking with a few different entities about how, how we might do the next thing or what it might, what might be different. I'm also completely open to suggestions. If there's listeners out there who feel like, um, certain issues need to be discussed or we should do this or we should do that, then, um, by all means, let me know because it takes a village. I, yeah, I can imagine. Well, yeah, guys, hit Nick up. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nick McCarble. <laughs> okay, he shouted himself out. I love it. I, I, I was going to do it for you, so I'm glad that you I did. mean, Dan, I, I've come this far. I have to be at least <laughs> a little bit good at self-promotion. Oh, that was – and it was, it was good. I liked it because it was kind of sly. You know, it was like a little under the radar. You got it in there, but it wasn't aggressive. I can tell you've done it before. It was so sadly obvious, and you can also <laughs> follow me on Instagram at Nick McCarble. Okay, here we go. Would you like to shout out your Pinterest? <laughs> I actually have never. I think I've been on Pinterest once. I don't really get what Pinterest is still, and it's I'm honestly weddings, very. I think. Well, that's why I weddings, don't know. <laughs> one day, Dan. One oh day. God, I don't know about that. Uh, well, this has been great, Nick. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, and, thanks for and, having me. And thanks for everything that you're doing. It's it's fantastic. I can't wait to read and, and watch everything that you do. And uh, I know I'm gearing up for an exciting season of tennis. Yeah, cool. Me too. Thanks, Dan. Of course. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.
guys, there you go. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Mr. Nick McCarver for his time. I am confident that you enjoyed hearing from him as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. He's so smart. He's doing so much. I can't wait to see what he's what he's going to do next. It's, it's really fantastic to have somebody like him out there on the front lines. So, again, thank you to Nick for the time. Thank you to you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I know Nick does, too. And let's continue to fight, guys. So much left to do. So, thanks again for listening. Same team, Daniel Trainer signing off. I will see you next time. Bye.